Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, a climate change podcast. In this episode, it's companies versus climate change. First time America Adapts actually goes on location for the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Back again. This is Doug Parsons. Like I said, this was a sort of an unusual episode. This was a first for America Adapts. I was invited to go down to a conference in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was like my own spring break to go down there, but in the, actually the end of November. It was for the Companies versus Climate Change Conference, and I was asked to go report back, be media there. So I actually had press passes. So I went down there, and I invited Tristan Corton, who's actually based in Miami, to come up and cover it with me. So he was able to attend for a day. And so we went around talking to different people and just covering what was happening at the conference. It was really a, a fun time. And so this podcast represents going to that conference. I did many podcasts on location. So please, you'll hear some background noise, but I think all the audio is really good. Actually, with the guests that come on, you can hear them quite well, but you do hear some background noise, but that's just the, the nature of um, recording these remotely. And so um, that's why it's a little bit different. I was stitching these together. And also I have transition sounds and they represent different sounds that you could find in Florida. So if you think you can identify all the different sounds from in between these different mini podcasts, please uh, let me know. And on that note, I have a Facebook page. Please consider liking the page. It's just search for America Adapts on Facebook and also have a community page on Facebook. Search for America Adapts podcast community. And on the community page, I actually, you know, I ask questions. It's a chance for followers to actually get a little bit more interactive with the podcast. And so please consider following that. Most importantly, consider subscribing on iTunes. So if you go into iTunes on your smartphone, you hit that purple eye, comes on, search for America Adapts, and you get to it, hit subscribe. That's the way it ends up in your inbox every Monday or Tuesday. And also, if you're feeling inspired and you're a regular listener, please go in and consider um, reviewing the podcast. It's very helpful to me to get a review, either hitting the stars or actually writing something out. So please consider that. Let's see. Any other additional details? Oh, yes. Um, I like in a part of that podcast community. I had a little contest. I said I'd give a little plug for anyone who could progress correctly. And I had said these different regions around the world, Hovestad, Denmark, Ontario, Canada, Pinchida, Ecuador, Fujian, China, and Bolanas, Asperis, Lithuania. And I asked, what do they all have in common? And it turned out they all have downloaded more America Daps podcasts than the state of Mississippi. And I asked my listeners to write in if they could guess. No one did. But the person who came closest was Eleanor Green Schutt. Eleanor, great job. Thanks for responding. I was having a little fun there. I was surprised that I got so many podcasts from... Fijing, China province. And so if you're from Fijing, China, and I'm talking dozens of downloads just from China alone, so I don't think it's just that random internet traffic. If you're listening, please give me a email. You know, I'll go to the website, americadaps.org, and I, you can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me a picture. I would love to include a picture from China on the Facebook page. All right. Without any further ado, let's get started on this podcast. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons. I am in lovely Fort Lauderdale, Florida for the Companies versus Climate Change Conference. I wanted to just catch up with you guys before I get started. There's a lot of businesses here, some nonprofits, but it's a mainly 
business-oriented conference, so I'm very interested in talking to people here. I've invited Tristan Corton, reporter from Florida, who's actually a previous guest, to come up, and he and I are going to talk to folks here, and we're going to do a little mini-podcast, but uh, it's absolutely gorgeous here, a nice change from the weather up in D.C., gigantic cruise ship across the way from the Hyatt Resort where the conference is being held, but um, just checking in, just wanting to let you know we'll be covering this conference, and hopefully going to have a lot of great, interesting uh, conversations with businesses that are adapting to climate change. Hey, everybody. Back. This is Doug Parsons, and I have a special guest today, previous episode guest, Tristan Corden. Hey, Tristan. Hi, Doug. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. <laughs> so we're here in your neck of the woods, right? Yeah, Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale, and you're down in Miami, right? Correct. So I used to live in Florida, but I forgot how gorgeous it is down here. You're just spoiled, very spoiled with the weather. Right. It's nice and warm here at the very beginning of December, but probably only <laughs> going to get warmer and warmer as the years go by. So why are we here together, Tristan? Uh, well, this is what companies versus climate change, and it's, you know, business-to-business business solutions as it's billed. But I'm really interested as a journalist in uh, what business, what the mood of, of industry is regarding climate change, adaptation and mitigation right now, especially with a, uh, a new, you know, administration coming into the White House that probably is not going to be very supportive of creating rules to force businesses to be more responsible about emissions. But here, you know, no, it, it's not obviously not everybody, but there are plenty of companies being represented here who are taking this seriously. And apparently they've got, you know, they're spending money on doing things towards sustainability. You know, it's a big ask. Without government intervention, it's a big ask to have these companies spend their money on something they kind of don't have to do in the immediate, although I think we'd all agree it has to be done. I don't know. That's my take on it. Well, and just so people know, we're actually doing this remotely, so those sounds you hear in the background, that's our lunch that's coming that just walked by us, so just... You get to enjoy some of the uh, the sounds of the conference, but um, this is actually my first business conference, and so it's very interesting. And so the lineup of speakers, it's a mix of mitigation and adaptation. And you, you mentioned, you know, the incoming administration. The, you know, there, there has been quite a bit of chatter among participants about that. You know, there, there's quite a bit of cynicism. You know, that everyone's kind of down on Donald Trump on climate change, and I think rightly so from some of the rhetoric, but I still think it's a big question mark. But here, I think the businesses are like, we're not going to wait around. Right. We need to do something, and if they have to change the language they use, they'll do it, but like, right. the train is moving on this. That's my impression. Yeah, that's my impression, you know, but, but I have to I, I have to take my rose-colored glasses off. I mean, I, that's my impression is reinforced by what I want to see. <laughs> so... You know, what What I found down here in Florida is when the state government clearly subverted attempts to work on climate issues within state government, you found that the municipalities, which were dealing with the real-world effects of this, had to step up, and they started doing what they had to do without the help of the state government. They just went on. And that's kind of what I'm anticipating we're going to have to do if the federal government backs off of its uh, help in this area. That business is just going to say, look, we got to do this. It's going to start costing us money. It's going to cost our customers money. And, and we have to start spending money now to mitigate the effects. 
Well, you'd mentioned I haven't met a lot of folks because it's still early. It's the morning of the first day of the conference, but I have met some local government people and one per- person in particular working for the South Florida Regional Planning Council. And they, I mean, she does sea level rise and sounds like really some cool, innovative things. She was on Years of Living Dangerously. It's absurd that the state government isn't leading on this, but as you say, other groups that aren't legally mandated to, you know, they, they can ignore the governor. They're moving ahead, and so I'm encouraged by that. And maybe with the right environment, those lessons could be applied at a much broader scale. Well, um, anything else? I think we'll check back in later. But uh, this Sounds is good. we're doing an insurgent podcast. So um, thanks again. It's great to meet Tristan in person. He's he's a little taller than I thought he'd be. So, all right, we'll we'll check back in later. Hi, everybody. We're back. I am with a very special guest today, Dr. Tiffany Troxler from FI. I'm blanking on FI, Florida International University. I keep calling it FIU, and I'm, now, I'm like, I never had to say it out loud. Hi, Tiffany. How are you? Great. Hi. So why are you here today? I'm here today because something that we uh, strive to do with the Sea Level Solutions Center is to forge new partnerships with um, community stakeholders that may not necessarily be the first ones you might think of in the fight against climate change, but this convening of companies that are uh, focusing their efforts on fighting climate change seem to be a great place to go to meet some new people uh, and learn about uh, companies that are taking this very seriously in their business practices. So the Sea Level Solution Center is a relatively new thing. That's It's kind of an interesting thing you've created there. So what exactly is it? So uh, what we've done with the Sea Level Solution Center is it's an interdisciplinary uh, collaborative effort among faculty, um, and we strive to develop uh, the, the knowledge to create uh, adaptation and mitigation strategy information that can be used by Uh, community partners, specifically municipalities, uh, state agencies, um, different levels of communities uh, in order to adapt to uh, sea level rise and also to ensure that uh, what we do to adapt to sea level rise doesn't exacerbate the climate change problem. Um, And so we bring together, um, as I mentioned, faculty from different disciplines. Uh, We also create uh, educational opportunities for students so that they can begin to understand the importance of collaboration across disciplines uh, to solve real-world problems. And in South Florida, sea level rise is a significant problem. So researchers are always struggling to find funding, and government agencies are always a source of funding, but here we have all these businesses really interested to get more involved. Do you see an opportunity for public universities to potentially get funding from these big global companies? Absolutely. I, I, I see that uh, universities can provide a, a, a tremendous service in terms of uh, innovation and creating new potentially uh, marketable ideas that can be used to apply sea level rise adaptation and mitigation strategies. Um, and we we strive to identify uh, companies, industry, as I mentioned, uh, other types of stakeholders who are interested in, in joining us and partnering and collaborating on uh, sea level solutions. So I have one last question for you. You are very familiar with all the sea level rise models that are out there. So it's the year 2075. We are 
at this Hyatt Regency that's on this man-made island, will this be underwater in 2075? Well, it depends on what elevation we are here, and it depends on whether... You've seen uh, the maps. Come on. Uh, uh, and it depends on whether uh, flood mitigation strategies are undertaken. So uh, what we've seen in, uh, in several parts of South Florida is that municipalities are taking steps to try to reduce the effects of flooding, um, and and that is um, that is one strategy, but... What, what we need to be thinking are about comprehensive solutions, long-term solutions, uh, so that we can continue in, to enjoy places like this in Fort Lauderdale and Miami. Well, that was a very diplomatic answer. Uh, good for you. I would say we would be looking at, like, sharks swimming by at this point, but who knows? All right. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you very much, Doug. It's a pleasure. I'm with... Gregory Hamra, is that correct? Greg, yes, Greg Hamra. And you're with? I'm with CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby. I'm the group leader of the Ground Zero chapter. That's the Miami chapter. Very popular chapter, right? Miami, everybody wants to go to Miami. so Yes, and leave at the same time. <laughs> so this is kind of an interesting conference, and I'm just curious, you guys have a table here. Why did you end up selecting this conference? Is it the? Well, well I'll tell you why. Uh, Companies versus Climate Change is the name of this conference. And so its focus is the corporate sustainability set. Uh, I'm well aware of the need to move the needle among key influencers. And key influencers in business are very important because they also help shape policy. What we need is sane climate policy. We need political will for a livable world. But politicians don't create political will. They respond to it. And they will respond to it if citizens of any level, anywhere in the in the society, speak to their lawmakers. But business interests sometimes have a louder voice because they want to have a louder voice. And if we can get through to them to help promote sane climate policy, particularly pricing carbon, we might actually have a chance of uh, implementing a policy that, well, the consensus of thought leaders seriously considers to be the holy grail of climate action putting a price on carbon. So you are a national group, but you're based here in Florida. So are you working on yep. state-level, city-level policies? Yes, what? yes. Well, no, not, not oh, I'm sorry, policies, no. We're not working at state or, or uh, city-level policies. And we're not just national, we're international. Oh, okay. Uh, within the, we are 360 chapters and nearly 45,000 volunteer members. Germany, France, Australia, Nepal, Canada, Big Footprint, and, of course, the United States, a lot of people here. What we're working on in the U.S. is uh, to pass a bill within the American Congress and Senate and to obviously have a, uh, a bill and turn into a law for a revenue-neutral carbon fee with a full refund dividend rebated to American households. We would like to see this happen in other countries as well, um, which is one of the reasons why ha- we have these chapters set up in other countries. Uh, if we do it alone, that doesn't do the trick. That doesn't fix things. To quote, uh, let me think, I guess it was September 16th, the Republican debates, when when Marco Rubio said, America's not a planet. What he meant was, (laughs) duh, of course, we know this, but his implication was that if the U.S. alone reduces carbon emissions and nobody else does, we're still screwed. Well, you know what? He's right, but the plan that we have takes that into account 
and through a border tariff adjustment would compel or encourage other countries to follow suit. Even the CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson, speaks eloquently about this in his 2009 uh, speech on the value of a revenue-neutral carbon tax. But even he acknowledges that the T-word freaks people out. He says, as a businessman, it pains me to talk about another tax, so I'm just going to call it a refundable greenhouse gas emissions fee. And in that talk, he refers to that very facet of the plan, refunding the money to households and then also having a border adjustment. That border adjustment protects you and me. If we have a domestic uh, manufacturing facility in the U.S., we have an increased cost of operations. How are we going to compete with Chinese competition? Well, what a border tariff adjustment does is it levels a playing field by taxing that imported good if it doesn't have a similar carbon fee behind it. Secondly, it discourages us from leaving and outsourcing our pollution. And number three, America's not a planet. It encourages other countries to follow suit. So with the Trump administration, everyone's thinking worst-case scenario, but have you guys sort of reconfigured? Are you thinking that you might actually be able to, you know, accomplish something, even though he's such a wild card? You know, no question that the whole world is surprised about this. And we went from what was uh, a pretty steep climb to a sheer cliff. Okay. And it's true. We're, we're a bit shaken up about this. But as I'm shaking off the, the pain and we're all licking our wounds around this, I'm starting to think that a Trump administration... Well, l- l- let me first... Let me answer the, the question simply and then I'll, I'll explore it for you. I'm here now and I want to make Trump a climate hero. I want to make President-elect Trump a climate hero. Yes, he's unpredictable. Some of his policies are quite palatable. He talks about expanding the need, you know, uh, infrastructure expansion. If he does it the right way and we fix our grid and we don't have all kinds of transmission and distribution losses and the excess wind energy that's produced in the West can actually move to the East because we're spilling it off, we're wasting a lot of that energy. If we put America to work and build a smart grid and get rid of our old grid that has literally 30% of tr- uh, loss of energy in transmission and distribution or TND losses, that's going to put people to work. But if we could get him to recognize the need for a small government, market-based solution that we advocate that saves lives, that creates jobs, that promotes American ingenuity and competition, these are ideals that conservatives hold dear. What's not to like? Oh, by the way, it does all that other stuff Al Gore talks about, right? We put that on the back burner, depending on who we talk talk to about this. But these are all facets of the plan. It's a small government plan that doesn't require a big government regulatory structure. That's what we have now. We have big government regulations, top-down regulations. If you don't like that, you should love our plan. And that's something that we hope President Trump and principled conservatives would embrace. And they do, in fact. The uh, one of the key figures in our organization, whose name is on our plan, is Republican icon George Schultz, Secretary George Schultz, Reagan Secretary of Everything. It's called the Schultz Becker Plan. All right. Well, thanks. That was very a lot of information. I could do a whole podcast with you, but I appreciate your time, Greg, and uh, your Citizens Climate Lobby. And uh, I will have some links to your organization and stuff for people when I include this on the podcast. But thank you so much for. That very, you know, thorough explanation of things. It's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Doug.
I'm with Chandler Van Voorhis, um, managing partner at Green Trees. Did I got that name right? Yes, you did. Uh, nice <laughs> to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. So why are you here at this conference today? We're here. We're, one, we're sponsoring this conference, um, and it just feels that it's an important time for companies to come down, figure out what the next steps are in terms of going forward and, and, and dealing with the climate change issue because ultimately, you know, companies are where the money is. Uh, and they can galvanize change a lot quicker than what can be done by going through the policy realms. doesn't mean the policy realms are wrong, but the, the companies can affect their own change very quickly. So you were here for something specific, though. You were launching an app. Could you yes. talk about that a little bit? So we've, we've got a couple of different companies underneath our umbrella, and, and one of them, Forest Green, is launching an app that is going to allow consumers uh, that uh, use the CabHound app to actually offset their ride. And it may only be a couple pennies because you're not going that far, but as, as all those, you know, what we call microtransactions scale up uh, into a ton sold, it creates a climate dividend back to our landowners in the Mississippi alluvial who are planting trees to to uh, soak up all that carbon. So people like using apps for any number of reasons, the interface and this kind of control over what you're doing, is. are you going to have in those apps that you can select, like, planting a longleaf pine over some other trees? We may eventually get down. Oh, really? I'm just kidding. We may, no, we may eventually get down to that road, I mean, because of some of the other efforts we're involved in with, I was telling you earlier about the, the longleaf. But probably the, the next thing we'll be looking at is the ability to not only offset, but maybe actually contribute um, to the Arbor Day Foundation, which we um, uh, partner up with to for a whole tree fund, if you will. And so there will be a couple different wrinkles that we'll throw down the road. But it's it's a good launch, and it's you know we're in nine cities as of today, and so Charlotte, New Orleans, Brooklyn, and a host of others. And so we hopefully bring this all the way across the U.S. and allow consumers really to affect the change they want to see in the world. And at the end of the day, if everybody had the will to say, this is what we want to see done, it, you know, it will get done. Um, one thing I've learned for 20 years of dealing with climate policy and science is governments are fast followers. And, uh, and it's usually going to take a coalition of people to get things moving, and then eventually they'll come in and they'll follow behind, and the policy will smooth out some of the rough edges. So I really enjoyed your presentation today, and you, you mentioned government. And so would your business profit more if there was a set carbon price, sort of a national set carbon price, or does that matter at all? It, I mean, it would. It, it, there's two, two kind of sides to this market. There is a, what you call a compliance market, like California is a compliance market. Um, that that the the benefit of that is it is it creates built-in demand out of industry to comply, and it's and it's really driven by fear. The other side is a voluntary market, which is all around the world, and the companies that are participating in that are are companies that are trying to manage their environmental liabilities, uh, because what's happened is uh, you know two out of every ten dollars on Wall Street is socially and environmentally screened, and so in order for the big pension funds to cover a particular stock, they've got to reduce their environmental liabilities. Their carbon footprint is just one part of that equation. It gets into water use, into uh, into a lot of other things. But a set carbon price, a high carbon price, is better. Uh, but a set one, who knows? I mean, it's. I, I think the world's moving to towards a carbon price. Right now, there's carbon prices all over. Yeah. You know, California's got one price, and Europe's got another, and the voluntary's got a third. And so it just uh, it will it will shake itself out in the future. 
Okay, thanks. I really appreciate it. And is there any place someone could go to learn more? Is there a particular website or? Yeah, if they want to go to our um, to to our website, then go to acre-investment.com. It can get you to our forest green site, which is technologyofnature.com, or or green trees as well. All right, and I have show notes, and I'll stick links and things on there too. So, but yeah, great talking to you. Nice talking to you, Doug. Hi, everybody. We're back. I'm with Michael Green of the Climate Action Business Association here at the Companies versus Climate Change Conference. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. So tell me a little bit about your um, business or your company that you work for. Yeah, so I'm the executive director of the Boston-based Business Association that's working with local businesses to help them understand the risk and opportunity of climate change. Okay. Could you quickly sort of say what are some of the uh, opportunities? Yeah, so we're working with our member businesses on helping to drive their internal sustainability, helping them understand the policy landscape and take action and use their voice as community leaders, and then also bringing them together as a community of shared values to find opportunities for business-to-business development, as well as sharing their best practices. So the private sector has really only started to kind of focus on this issue recently, and this conference is kind of talking about those things. The government has really done a lot. Have you been involved with any sort of public-private partnerships? Is that a thing that you do? Yeah, so we do a lot of work with our local governments, uh, especially on the municipal level. Uh, What I'm seeing is, yeah, sure, a lot of corporations are just opening their eyes to this and coming around to it, but small businesses, the SME space, has been working on this for a while. Uh, So we're finding ways to take that story of these small business leaders that are social innovators, uh, looking at the threats to their community and their environment, and their impacts just as important as their bottom line, and how do we share that story? How does that become the new story for how businesses are taking action on climate change? So how did you hear about this conference? You're from Boston. How did you end up down in Fort Lauderdale? So we're looking at opening uh, up an office and doing some work, actually, in Florida. We're currently only uh, working with about uh, uh, businesses across the state in Massachusetts and in New England, Uh, but we're looking at opening and doing more work down here. Uh, because of the great risk of sea level rise, especially here in southern Florida, that uh, is facing the community. So what do you think of the conference so far? So far, the conference is great. Uh, There's not a lot of people here that are working or representing the voice of small businesses. Uh, I see why would there be. You know, these business owners are too busy. Uh, They don't have the time or the availability, really, to come to a conference like this. Uh, But how do we work to find more small business champions? Uh, and share that story. There's some groups out there, um, ourselves, the American Sustainable Business Council, uh, Alliance for Business Leadership, that are helping to share those stories and bring it to conferences such as this. Uh, but so far, you know, we're seeing a lot of corporate sponsors. Uh, I'd love to find ways that we can not just be giving them the limelight, but what's happening on the local level. So I actually asked some of my listeners if they had questions that I could ask when I was down here. And one of them that came up I thought was a really good one is that the notion of sustainability has been around for a couple decades. And it's almost got a bad reputation like, oh, you're the sustainability officer. You have no budget and you're there to annoy other sections of the company. And some companies take it really seriously. But you know what I'm talking about. There's that sort of reputation. And the question is just, does the adaptation resilience risk person that these companies are starting to bring on, are they going to follow that same path, or do you think that it will be integrated better in, in the coming years than the sustainability officer? And, you know, my apologies to all the sustainability officers out there, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, I think the people that are coming in in risk positions are going to be even worse off. Uh, you have to think of they're not only going to be a, a nuisance to, to various program areas of a company, uh, but they also are going to run into the challenges 
of having to be, uh, you know, building in resiliency programs and redundancy. And if you start to work with any larger businesses or even the medium, smaller businesses, having to build out uh, redundancy is kind of the vein of uh, department's existence in a lot of situations. Uh, So finding ways that we can make it, you know, for lack of a better term, snap cool and sexy in order to be resilient is really going to be key to making sure that they don't fall into the same traps as sustainability officers. Again, no offense, guys. Great answer. Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Michael, are you a Patriots fan? Uh, I'm not. Go Eagles. Oh, okay. I'm not a Tom Brady guy. All right, thanks, Michael Green. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm here with Nick Astor from Triple Pundit. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. So what is Triple Pundit? Well, we're a media company. We publish articles, video, and other content about sustainability for a business audience. Okay, so you're one of the conference organizers here. Why did this conference appeal to you? Well, we do a lot online, but at the end of the day, being in person at an event like a conference such as this happens to be a really valuable way to engage with companies, look for partnerships, uh, learn from folks, and in general, network. And uh, this has been terrific so far. So this is the first one of its kind. So are you planning to try to do a, a second year of it? That's the plan. Uh, it's gone real well so far. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Uh, already got a bunch of new ideas for next year. So uh, definitely uh, stoked to keep it going. All right. So here's some of my feedback. I've really enjoyed the conference. And you guys have done a mix of adaptation and mitigation. But I think it like needs to be themed out more. You know, it's mixed in. And so it, I, I, if, if I'm making sense, like if... Maybe a, a track of just adaptation versus a track of... Because I find some of the mitigation stuff not as relevant. And so, I mean, was it just a conscious decision to kind of mix it all in? Or do you see maybe you could recruit more on either one of those topics? Yeah, no, that's not a bad idea, actually. It would be interesting to build it out that way. At the end of the day, you know, we had a number of companies we were working with, uh, some of whom are sponsors, some of whom are not. Uh, and it was kind of a matter of figuring out what was most, most relevant to those companies and those individuals, and that's kind of how, what we went with. But definitely not a bad idea to try to break it out uh, the way you just described. And it's kind of funny. We Everyone's sort of been dissing sustainability as a word, and one of the questions from one of my listeners I asked in advance is that sustainability officers have sort of been not treated well over the last couple of decades. They're doing some great work, but sometimes they don't have a budget. And, you know, they're those guys that come to those meetings and they're not, you know, able to influence as much as they like. And so do you think there's an opportunity with climate change maybe to skip over that's instead of that climate change person being the sustainability person that it's ramping those efforts up? I mean, what do you think? That's a tough question. Uh, certainly there's opportunities all over the place to make this issue relevant across an organization, um, particularly from a risk perspective, also from an opportunity perspective. Um, I agree that sustainability is, is, is a difficult word. At the moment, it seems to be the best word that we have, so I continue to tolerate it. Um, but I also use words like systems thinking and value creation, um, shared value, things like that, which imply the connectivity that's needed to address all kinds of sustainability issues, of which climate change happens to be one of the biggest. Okay. Well, I think that's all we need, but Nick, you've done a great job. I think uh, you've been sort of the master of ceremonies for a lot of these, so I've, I've enjoyed it. So uh, congrats again on this first inaugural conference. My pleasure. Looking forward to following the podcast. Hi, everybody. We're back at the conference. I have another guest here. We're going to talk about sea level rise. Hi there. I'm with Shimon Wodawanski. Please correct me in my pronunciation. <laughs> Shimon Wodawanski. Okay. And so where are you at? 
I'm at Florida International University. So That's the Department of Earth and Environment. And I'm studying various kinds of uh, natural hazards. And recently I've been uh, focusing on uh, sea level rise in southern, uh, southeastern Florida. So you are pretty much ground zero for sea level rise in the coming years, right? And so there's probably a lot of interest in what you do? Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons I started looking at that, because I've been living here and hearing all about these uh, high seas and flooding, and I noticed that not too many people are actually relying their information on actual observations. So a couple of years ago, I started collecting data when we have floods and how often, and we published a study just uh, in the beginning of the year uh, where we took information from insurance, from media reports, and also tide gauge and rain, and we accumulated all the information and noticed that there was a significant increase of flooding in this uh, area. Actually, we did the study was in uh, Miami Beach in the past 10 years. So there was a big significant change in sea level rise here over the past decade, and actually we analyzed also the information from the tide gauges Notice there was a significant increase if global sea level rise by about two to three millimeters per year. Uh, over here in the past decade, there was an acceleration and it uh, rose by about nine millimeters per year. So there was a significant impact and sea level here, I mean, the, the, there's not much tide, so all of the settlements are pretty close to sea level. And as a result, we have the, this impact here. We, we get it here more than in other places. So this is probably not a typical conference that you go to, and so I'm curious, I mean, the sort of information that you're generating, the participants here probably really want to use, but there aren't probably as many opportunities for you guys to interact as there probably should be. So I'm curious, I mean, what's it like coming to this? You don't normally come to a conference like this, right? Actually, I, I more and more the, the I'm involved in the community over here, and I've been attending similar conferences where there's some exchange of information between the people who do the science and provide information, and the people who would like to use it for planning in the future. So, actually, in this area, I'm I'm happy to see this kind of uh, information exchange. Uh, that it's not everywhere. But a lot of people are aware of the, the, the issue of sea level rise here, and um, they ask me about it, and it's, it's, it's interesting. All right, great. Well, I appreciate your time, and uh, I'm sure we'll keep chatting, and I'm going to have links to what you're doing on my show notes, and so people, if they want to learn more about some of these studies that you've done, I'll, I'll have access to that. So thanks. Thanks for talking to me. All right. Thank you. Okay, here we are at nearly the end of day one of I always forget, business versus climate change. Companies versus, versus climate change. Thank you, Tristan. You've had to correct me twice on that now. There's a big sign at the front of the room with that, and I'm just blanking out on that. So Tristan and I just want to touch base before Tristan has to take off. But uh, Tristan, any thoughts since we talked earlier this morning about the conference? Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. Conferences are hard. You know, it's hard to sustain your focus through lots of people talking uh, on some complicated issues. But uh, the last person we heard talk was uh, a Citibank, excuse me, Citigroup's uh, chief sustainability officer. And, you know, 
that's on a massive scale. That's a hundred. They were talking about a hundred billion dollar commitment to uh, green energy and, and, and green business. Uh, so that they're going through their own business and they're going to the, the businesses they they work with, I guess, finance, um, to make sure they meet criteria for, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, uh, you know, overall sustainability. Uh, pretty fascinating to me. What do you think about it? Well, there, there was a lot of information thrown out. Just there was this two, two panel sessions, this last one that we watched, um, listened to it, and one of the stats was this: the econ- the world's economy is like thirty six trillion, and government is three trillion, and the you know private sector is like twenty two trillion. trillion. It was I think she put two different numbers there, but it, her point was like it's overwhelmingly private sector. But it made me think about like water pollution, and so you have non point source pollution, and you have point source pollution. It's so much easier to deal with point source pollution because you know where where it is. It's like the you know the a power plant or something. And so it's easier to regulate. It's easier to deal with. And so that's why we spend so much time trying to get government. So even though it's a smaller part of the economy, it's an easier piece to control. And so that her point about this larger private sector economy, it's a lot tougher to get it. And I, her point was trying to like, we really need to get them to engage. And of course we do, but it just, that's a big challenge to sort of get widespread adoption to affect that $22 trillion part of the economy. It's not easy. That's the non-point source of, you know, carbon that we're having to deal with here. Right. And without a government sort of prompting them to do it. Asking them to do it on their own is a big ask. Without the government saying, okay, carbon tax, start ponying up. <laughs> it's like a family of 20, and while there's two parents, they're going to have a big influence right. on how the rest of those 18 people behave. Right. So it's, 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 I mean, her point was well taken, but uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not, you come out of these things and you're only hearing this, this, the good stuff of that $22 trillion dollars at play from all those corporations, you know, how many of those corporations are going to be serious about sustainability? That's that's the question. But it was kind of assuring to hear, you know, how many are involved in it. She had a lot of good anecdotes about companies, um, you know, using sustainability as a filter for their design. She said that specifically about Nike, but she talked about Nike and Unilever and what was the big paper company she mentioned? They were interesting. Um, blanking. Well, I find it interesting the people that end up in these um, corporations, like she, the one of the women spent 15 years in the Rainforest Alliance doing yeah. a lot of really cool things, and yet they end up in the corporate world. And, you know, it ultimately can be a really positive things, but it, the diversity of, like, where a lot of these corporate people have come from, it, it really in- interesting. So. Yeah. And, and so the, 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 the other point she was making about the scale of corporations versus government versus the nonprofit world is that if you want something done, really, it's going to be at the corporate level. And, and then she went on, or the, the professor went on to say that she that she saw signs of optimism among cities picking up and doing the work. And this was all in response to the change in administration. And is the Trump administration really going really gonna to withdraw support for all, a lot of these initiatives? Um, and if they do, these people are saying, look, there's room for hope that the real power lies with the individual businesses and the individual cities here and around the world, you know, picking up picking up the slack and doing what they're just going to do and, 
you know, you need to ignore the government, and if they're not going to help you, just carry on and do it yourself. I mean, it's not ideal, but... Any last thoughts about the day? I, I felt like I met a, a lot of really interesting people. I still have a lot of people to meet. I'm coming back tomorrow. I think I have an idea, too, for a potential guest, like this Karen Porter from the Southern, it's like the Regional Planning Council. Oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah, she, she's a lot <laughs> she's of fun. a lot of fun. She knows her stuff, but I th- I'm going to recruit her to come on. But anyone, yeah. any interesting conversations stand out? Uh, yeah, there were a lot of interesting conversations. I thought um, uh, I'm... I am awash in interesting conversations. I have to sit down and pick through my brain and, and sort them all out. But um, there were a lot, you know, there's a lot of really smart people here and who know a lot more than I do about all this stuff. So, yeah, I, I can't spring top five even on you. Well, there was a few moments, and I, Tristan's a very modest guy, but he was like a, a celebrity no, as I, introducing. I, I the guy wanted his photo with Tristan. This is the famous <laughs> Florida band's uh, climate change guy. And um, it was very interesting, too, because one person who had absolutely no clue about the story worked for Florida Power and Light. So <laughs> it was ironic that the one person had never even heard of this international story. So I thought that was kind of a funny little moment we had there. So Yes, uh, that was funny. Any words of wisdom? No, I'm picking up my wisdom here and here and, and from talking with you. Uh, you guys know this stuff uh, more than I do. You're, you're much more versed in it. So, uh, no, I think it's good. I, I'm, look, I'm here looking for story ideas. I've got three or four kicking around my brain. You know, important stuff. That, that uh, And I'm educating myself on what we're going to do now, especially in the next four years, what we're looking at. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have Tristan back on the podcast if he wants to come back on. Maybe we'll talk a, a bit about your GQ story that came out sure. last month. Yeah. And then if you have some of these ideas that you're sort of maturing, then maybe yeah. we could talk about You know, we use the podcast as a brainstorm. So I hope you think about coming on for that reason, too. So um, on that note, I'm looking around. We're in Fort Lauderdale on this little man or this artificial island. And it occurred to me as I walked in, this should all be underwater just with three feet of sea level rise. So this, you know, <laughs> appropriate location. It always is. All right, I will have more updates, but thanks, Tristan. I'm glad you could make it. Thank you, Doug. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's your host, Doug Parsons of America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast. It's the Adaptation in Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. Tim Watkins, how are you? Hey, Doug. I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing dandy. So I just got back from a conference. Was it a wine conference? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm supposed to ask you what you're drinking before we get started here. <laughs> so what are you drinking? I don't want to get you off track there, Doug. Um, so uh, your wife, I know, is a Francophone and a Francophile. And so she at least will appreciate the fact that I'm drinking a French wine. It's a Pinot Noir and the label is Domaine du Mou which I'm probably butchering, but I'll let you run that past her. And what year is it? It's a t- 2015 Pinot Noir, and it's very enjoyable. Wow. I don't think I could pronounce that back to her. I'm drinking a two-buck chuck right now, a very inexpensive wine, but it's hitting the spot for me. So you, <laughs> you're, you're the fancy one you're, here. You are adapting away. I think this is a $8 bottle of wine, but don't tell your wife. Gosh, $8. That's a cheap bottle of wine, too. You know, I'm just going to Google it. Okay. Well, listen, while you're Googling it, let's get started here. Sure. 
So um, I actually want to chat maybe with you just a little bit longer. So I went to this conference last week, and I, I will – by the time people hear this, they know that what it was. It was this Companies versus Climate Change Conference. I was invited to cover it as media, which is kind of exciting. I never considered myself media, but now that I'm doing this podcast – I am right up there with like all the most important reporters. And so they invited me to come and cover this. And so it was exciting. I went down to Florida. It was in Fort Lauderdale at the Hyatt. And so I spent two and a half days just meeting people, businesses, NGOs to talk about companies versus climate change, which in itself is kind of a provocative a title. Give the organizers credit for just sticking it out there. But yeah, I, I sort of want to talk about that with you because we don't typically talk about businesses a lot. Both our backgrounds are more into natural resources and things. Yeah, but I think we actually really should. I think, so first of all, congrats on getting down there. And I see you've got, um, you know, America Adapts, the Climate Change Podcast is billed as one of the partners of this uh, whole conference. So Good press coverage there. But yeah, you know, in the face of political changes, uh, policy changes, what governments are doing, I think it's really important to remember that government is not the only actor. And obviously through policy, it can set the stage on which other actors do things. But while I'm looking at this list of companies that were down there really talking about this, and it's an impressive set of companies, and it's a good reminder that Billion-dollar industries are really well invested in and committed to uh, responding to climate change in ways that obviously not only improve their bottom line but also, I think, do good for the world. Yeah, and if, I, I think you're looking at the agenda, and it was a, a, a pretty diverse – and one thing I, I – really think stood out is that I think businesses are still, and you know, this is true of every sector, but they're getting their head around separating mitigation and that, you know, that means on the carbon emission side of things versus adaptation and resilience. And so if you look at the agenda, there was a big mix of that. And I would say it, it leaned more so toward the mitigation side of things. And it was interesting looking at the businesses and the speakers and the people talking during the coffee hours, how they were kind of in those universes, because I, you know, you and I have typically have gone to conferences where it's, we show up and we're talking about adaptation. Yes. Right. Right. I am curious, you know, companies for a long time have had sustainability initiatives and sustainability programs and, you know, vice presidents of sustainability. And uh, sometimes it gets knocked as greenwashing, but there are definite good impacts that they're having to ensure that the resources that they use or the uh, pollu pollution that they produce is minimized. But I'm seeing a lot in this uh, use of the term resilience. And you were there, I wasn't. Uh, did you get a sense of what they mean by resilience and if they're making a distinction between that and sustainability or, or adaptation? Well, I think they were more comfortable using the term resilience. It I think with the speakers that were there, generally the way the sessions worked is that we were all together and every speaker, everybody heard. And so a few of the speakers, I to me, they define resilience properly. It's about you know this issue of withstanding change. But if you need to move to a different system, then you can. But others, it's just I think, oh, well, we're just going to climate-proof things. So it was a mishmash and there wasn't any – real kind of strong conversation among people about what the difference might be. Again, that's just, that's not happening out there. Mm, yeah. I don't think the businesses care. They're, they're thinking of, you know, what is it? Uh, what's the term when you have your uh, product up the chain? Um, it's supply keeping chain. that supply chain moving that, you know, how do we, 
climate proof that. And so that, that's sort of what they're going on in their head and sort of like what the government has kind of done too. Sure. An impressive diversity of companies here. We just look at the partners, you know, you've got airlines, you've got banks, you've got consulting firms, of course, you've got manufacturers of various products, Avery, the office, you know, um, office label company, paper company, and various others. Interesting that it was so diverse. Yeah. I'm very curious on the organizers how, I mean, they just did a, cast a wide net. I mean, I talked to the, the organizers for a little bit, but not, not a lot. And they just, yeah, the, the recruitment of speakers and businesses and, you know, it wasn't a huge conference. It was probably like 150, 200 people. And I think the, the supporters and the names of people who that got involved to their credit are some pretty big names for a relatively small conference. Mm-hmm. And so it, what do you see as some opportunities with these kind of groups here in, in our own universe? Uh, <laughs> Besides money. <laughs> you mean opportunities for these companies to get engaged in uh, adaptation? Or sure. do you mean opportunities for us to get involved with them? Ollie, but let's just say we're starting from the point that the conservation and the natural resource universe has no money and businesses have money. Maybe we should join up with these people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, at some level, these companies are there because they have probably some of them have some kind of a social mission. They're B corporations, for example, that you know, are explicitly designed around doing good for the world around them as they conduct their business. And it it shouldn't be that hard to align the mission and activities of companies like that with conservation groups or even government agencies that are doing conservation. What I wanted to talk a little bit about too is that – and I had these side conversations that were really interesting to me is that um, – this notion of sustainability and not to knock the sustainability officers out there, but you know, we've had these positions in companies and government offices of the sustainability officer. And those, a lot of them are, they struggle and there, there's no budget assigned to what they're doing. And they go to meetings and they're just like, Oh, it's you. You're the guy with the, the light bulbs. And there, there was that sense of the people there, the participants of like, we need to get past sustainability. And I asked some of the people that I did these, you know, the mini podcasts that you, they would have already heard by now is that do we risk like the adaptation officer or the resilience officer becoming the next sustainability officer? And there was a real concern that we could waste 10, 20 years where there's the token climate change person who's struggling to get the broader company. And, you know, they give it lip service, they donate money to these conferences, but are they actually doing big, important things within the company. And so that that yeah. was some chatter going on. Well, that's interesting. You know, I think I mentioned sustainability efforts and corporations often getting maligned as just being greenwashing. I, I think there's oftentimes a tendency to, to look at sustainability programs and corporations as fundamentally public relations efforts or marketing efforts, right? It's really about messaging your company in a certain way to the to the world around you. And it's not necessarily about the core business and money-making potential of that company. Whereas, you know, adaptation acknowledges that climate change really is happening and it really is affecting the operations of a company, the market that that company 
works within the customers that that company can have access to, the sorts of products that it can produce, the cost at which it produces those products and the prices it can charge and all the rest. It's really, you know, it acknowledges the climate change effects, all of that. And so an adaptation officer or an adaptation program that's developed and presumably funded within a corporation, that office, I think, probably is closer to the core business of the company than would be a sustainability office, which is, you know, sort of more of a PR and and public messaging kind of kind of function, I think. And it, it just would be interesting to see if there are companies that start to do this kind of thing and take take adaptation as a as as a real part of their doing business. Well, I think if I mean I think the organizers are planning to do another conference next year, and if they have twice as number, as many people, and I think hopefully that'll be a sign that these companies are trying to get more of their own employees serious about this issue. So I, you know, mm-hmm. it's just going to be growth in the area. Yeah, you know, I also want to mention the kind of the vibe there that, of course, the presidential race weighed in, and. You know, there were a lot of businesses there, so it's not your typical <laughs> super left-leaning conservation audience. And, you know, there was some concern. There was people like, okay, what is it going to mean under President Trump? And there was some hostility there too. And I was, I was actually kind of surprised because it was more, I thought it was, you know, the business audience wouldn't be so hostile, but the mayor of Fort Lauderdale was there and he didn't say anything about Donald Trump, but he was a Republican and he came up and did the opening plenary speech and he just, kicked butt you know he came out and said a lot of things about you know we need to do this and you know he lives in he's a mayor of fort lauderdale in miami fort lauderdale dealing with these issues all the time so it was very it was was a good inspirational Mm -hmm. way to kick off the meeting and it was a republican mayor so but he was critical of other politicians especially at the national level who are not taking climate change seriously yeah, to a certain extent. I don't want to put words in his mouth. His speech wasn't about like attacking other politicians. It was more about like we're not going to wait around. We've yeah. got to do these things. Mm-hmm. And right. well, attacking policy and attacking slowness of of adopting climate change response policy. Yeah. Well, and and again, some chatter too is like there were a lot of South Florida people there, and so I would just you know mentions like, well, you know, people aren't talking about adaptation enough, and they just gave me this blank look. They're like, that's all we talk about down here. And you're right because you know they got the, the four-county compact and you have a concentrated area of people planning. I met so many sea level rise people. And so it was truly a unique geographic area where they're, they're like, we don't even talk about mitigation here. It's all about adaptation. So it, it was kind of really interesting that way. Yeah, right. Good. Well, I, I'm glad they organized this. Uh, you know, it's it's bringing good attention to a really important topic among a important constituency and, and uh, corner of the economy. And I hope they'll keep doing it. You said they would have one next next year. So, but you know, November in Fort Lauderdale. What's what's not to love? Yes, <laughs> I can attest to that. It was lovely. It was 85 degrees. That's crazy. I mean, I grew up in Florida and I forgot how awesome it is down there. So yeah. And I, you know, we had, I had lunch with you just what, two days ago and it was cold and very oh, rainy in DC. Yeah. And I know how much you were loving that weather. So I, I if Gregor's listening to this, it, he better <laughs> pay us back because I got soaking wet coming home, walking across the National Mall my, up to my knees. I was sopping wet. So Gregor. Just better appreciate me and Tim. Well, that's interesting, Doug, because I did not, and I had an umbrella. I have this dinky little thing that barely fits on a drink. Um, 
<laughs> on that note, uh, you know, I want to say one of some other things, a little bit of gossip from the conference is that there were some NGOs there. And um, I sp- spoke to someone from Na- Na- Nature Conservancy, but a Florida Nature Conservancy, and she was ex- informing me, and I'm sure I probably have this wrong, but how Nature Conservancy as an organization is making a major pivot to deal with carbon emissions and like wanting to do carbon policy. And I know they've been somewhat involved with that, but it sounded like this is a major new initiative. And, you know, quite frankly, I was pushing back on her. I'm just like, well, don't these other groups like NRDC and EDF do these things? And she didn't want to have any part of that. She didn't appreciate (laughs) me questioning TNCs, but it's just, you know, TNC has a longstanding reputation, you know, for doing conservation of lands and for them to be just getting... I don't know. Is that their primary mission? I don't know. That's sort of like gossip at the conference that I thought was kind of interesting, and I haven't really heard much about that nationally as a focus. I mean, have you? TNC's role in this? No. No, I haven't. Like pivoting and being like a major player when it comes to like carbon emission policy. Right. No, no, I haven't. Because you're right. They have always been a land uh, conservation uh, organization and and biodiversity and ecosystem services conservation group. So it's very much rooted in uh, in real estate. Anyway, she got very defensive to me because I was just like, what? Huh? (laughs) Why are you doing that? Um, Not that I was questioning her individual role. I'm sure doing great work, but I'm just like. Come on, TNC. Protect those last great places. We don't need more carbon emission people. And, you know, there was this sort of angle, too, that, you know, they want to come at it from the middle of the road. And I'm just like, well, are you implying that EDF and some of these other groups are not coming from the middle of the road? I don't know. What what do you mean the middle of the road? Politically? or Well, and the policies that they're recommending, and it's just – I, I was jumping all over that. I'm like, well, do you would you support a carbon tax? And they're like, of course. And it's just like, well, that's from the left, even though those are those are considered like modest attempts at dealing with carbon. Lots just of economists on the right, though, acknowledge that carbon tax is the best way to do this. Well, right, but I'm saying groups like NRDC and EDF, uh-huh. they all want a carbon tax, and so the notion that TNC is somehow staking out some middle ground that I think a lot of groups have been there for a long time. I don't yeah. think that was fair either. Right. You know what? I'm dissing TNC, but it was an interesting conversation. So, um, it makes for better listening for people that, you know, there was some controversy at the, the conference and it wasn't all just a bunch of, you know, easy softball questions to everybody. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we better wrap this up. This was an extra long, adi- this was like a 14 minute edition of the adaptation on wine power hour <laughs> if we're going to keep doing this we need more expensive wine yeah um get the big bottle of that uh cheap stuff the gallon containers um, <laughs> the four all right any, any last thoughts tim before we wrap this up uh no last thoughts not for me <laughs> you're feeling blue you're heading into the winter season feeling a little blue tim i'm gonna take this tim out for a drink soon all right everybody sounds good uh, let's let's make it fort lauderdale yeah, heck yeah. All right. On that note, Tim, thanks a lot. And uh, all my listeners, uh, thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Okay, everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Don't forget, considering supporting the podcast, I am an independent podcaster. This is how a lot of podcasts works. They ask their listeners to contribute and help keep the podcast going. That's what I'm doing with this podcast. So don't be shy. You can go to the website at americadaps.org, and there's an opportunity to pay through PayPal. Anything would be much appreciated. You know, you can do a monthly contribution. But again, I'm an independent podcaster. I'm not affiliated with any large organization. I think I'm giving you a great 
product here. So yes, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. And again, don't forget to consider subscribing on iTunes at Purple Eye. Hit it. Hit subscribe on America Daps. I have the Facebook page. We have the community group. I tweet at USA Adapt. So please consider tweeting to me and I'll tweet you right back. I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. I'm always getting fantastic ideas for guests. And if you have an amazing one, please consider contacting me. Or if you think you are the amazing guest idea, contact me. I, I, I'm always looking out. I have a few in the queue at any given moment, but I, I'm always on the lookout and I'm looking for sort of non-traditional ones too. And we're gearing up with a, a new president and I'm sure that's going to be very exciting. And I, I'm going to change some things up in response to that. But um, again, thanks for joining me here at America Daps, a climate change podcast. And thanks again to Sean Martin for, thanks again for the invite to companies versus climate change. And I said, Sean Martin, because he's I recorded today, he will be out in a couple of weeks. Sean Martin, the senior director of adaptation resilience at the world wildlife fund. So uh, stay tuned for that. Thanks. Have a great day.